following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Hey, good morning, church. How are we? Good. Good to see you. Uh, if you're new around here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor, and I'm really grateful that you are here with us. Um, I'll just give you a reminder, as always, that uh, if you are new and looking to be known, uh, the Connect card that's in your seat there, the gray and blue card, uh, that's for you to fill out. Or the backside's for prayer requests. And so if there's a way that we can pray for you, um, we would love to know about that. Our staff gathers every Monday to pray for the needs that are made known. So um, you can turn that Connect card into those giving boxes in the back. And uh, if, if you're new in, in turning that in, we're going to give $5 to uh, Haywood County Flood Relief um, on your behalf. So hope that you'll do that. Uh, if you have a Bible, why don't you open it to Acts chapter 13. We are slowly making our way through the book of Acts. And um, if you've been with us, what we've seen is uh, God's power uh, unleashed through his people, through everyday ordinary people like you and me. Uh, the church is expanding. It's growing Uh, as men and women who are empowered with the Spirit of God go and proclaim the Word of God. And uh, last week in Acts chapter 12, we really were looking at the centrality of prayer uh, to the lives of these disciples. I showed you that from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 12, prayer was either mentioned and or demonstrated. Uh, And even though uh, the the prayers didn't always believe uh, that God could do what what He would do, they, they prayed nonetheless, and God showed Himself faithful. And prayer really was the, the, the foundation uh, of the early church. And if prayer was the foundation, uh, then the Holy Spirit really has been the force behind the early church. Uh, Jesus promised that the disciples would receive power from God's Spirit uh, back in Acts chapter 1. And it's with that power that they've, that they've been able to advance God's kingdom, proclaiming the gospel as they've gone. Um, today is really a pivotal moment in the life of this early church, because uh, we're going to see sort of the, the hub of mission shift. From this point forward, uh, Antioch, the city of Antioch, will become the church at Antioch, will become the sort of home base for the church. Uh, up till now, it's been Jerusalem. Uh, most, you know, all the early Christians were Jewish, and, uh, and so they were operating out of the Jewish home base, which is Jerusalem. But there's this pivotal moment, this shift, uh, and the church really takes on a lot more intentional missionary emphasis starting today. So what we're going to do, uh, if we looked at prayer last week, I thought we could do this this morning, and, and it's right here in the text, is we're sort of going to double click on uh, and, and see an exploded view of how the Holy Spirit actually works in advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, if he is the force, and I don't mean that like the force, like Star Wars, right? The Holy Spirit is a person, um, Uh, We believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are equally and eternally God, and yet there's only one God. Uh, If you understand that, come talk to me afterwards and explain it, but but that's what the Scripture teaches, and so we believe it. And so the person of the Holy Spirit is what is empowering and driving. It's not just some sort of nebulous force out there. And nevertheless, uh, what what I want to do is help us to see how the Holy Spirit works how the Holy Spirit works in advancing the kingdom of God. And so uh, I'm going to start in verse, actually in verse 25 of chapter 12, because that's where we left off last week. And uh, we're just going to cover about the first 12 verses of chapter 13 this morning. So if you have a Bible uh, in front of you, uh, then follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 25 of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. 
When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, uh, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, so we're talking about the same guy, Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas or Elymas, however you want to pronounce that, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am grateful uh, to be gathered with these brothers and sisters this morning. We are grateful to be under the authority of your word and in the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I do invite you to make your presence known among us this morning, um, to encourage, to challenge, to uh, rebuke, to comfort, uh, to save, and to bring uh, some from death into life, spiritually speaking. And, uh, and Holy Spirit, I, pr- I plead with you to fill me and empower me as I uh, preach this morning, that I would rightly divide this word, that it would be, um, uh, that you would do what only you can do through our study of this text, and that you would help us to, to see more clearly the beauty and glory of Jesus and to cling to him uh, with everything that we have. And so, uh, Lord, just be among us, be with us, and help us uh, as we study this passage just to, um, to get what you want us to get from it and uh, to, to leave this place um, uh, just enamored with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, we love you. We thank you for this time together and pray your blessing over our study in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Now, I want to just connect the dots for us a little bit. If you haven't been with us through this whole study, or if you've not read all of the book of Acts before, um, in Acts chapter 11, so a few weeks ago, uh, ordinary everyday believers are the ones who bring the gospel to Antioch. Antioch is this metropolitan city. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. And uh, it wasn't the leaders. It wasn't the apostles who first went to proclaim Jesus. It was just everyday people like us. And so they do that. They come in. They start proclaiming the gospel. They start sharing it with people that they meet. And, And the text tells us that great numbers of people surrendered to Jesus. Great numbers of people uh, became believers. And so the church becomes formed from all these different cultures and ethnicities. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, I said there were at least 18 different ethnic groups in Antioch who were all sort of divided into little ghettos. And when the gospel came in, people from all those ghettos started to, you know, share life with each other. It was, it was so profound uh, that, that, that the people of Antioch called this new group Christians. All right, so where we first got the name Christian because they were so distinct from any other group, any other religion, any other following uh, that, that they, they named them Christians there. And so Barnabas and Saul spend about a year discipling this new church. Uh, Along the way, there's a a prophet named Agabus who tells them there's going to be a famine in the land. And so the church of of Antioch um, puts together an offering. They they are generous of their own accord to give money to the church at Jerusalem so that it can be uh, distributed to the churches in Judea, Judea who needed those financial resources because they didn't have food. And so Barnabas and Saul, again, are the ones who take that, that offering to Jerusalem. On the way there, likely, at some point in that, in that year or on their way, is when we saw what happened in Acts chapter 12, right? That James, the uh, apostle, is murdered by 
<coughs> by the authorities that Peter is arrested and the church begins to pray for him and, and then the, the, an angel comes and releases him and the church doesn't believe it when he comes to the door. We looked at that last week. So all that is happening, right? So now when we pick up in verse 25 of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul have now returned from Jerusalem. They brought that financial offering. All this stuff with Peter has, has happened and now they're on their way back and they bring with them John Mark. John Mark is, uh, is the man who we met last week. His mother, Mary, had the home where the church was praying, okay? And he, many scholars think, was the cousin of Barnabas. So he's like, hey, come on, cuz. And they come back. He comes back with them uh, here to Antioch. Now, during that year of discipleship, it appears as though Barnabas and Saul also established leadership in the church. We have this group here uh, of prophets and teachers uh, you, could, you could almost think of this like an elder team, okay? And uh, now they're prophets and teachers. In the New Testament, um, Ephesians says that there are prophets and teachers and apostles and others given for equipping the saints. At this time, there is no, no t- New Testament yet. And so the church needs these prophets and these teachers to help them understand who Jesus is and how to follow him. And, uh, and I want you to get a load of this team uh, because it's crazy. Uh, the the, the how this team reflects not only the multiculturalism of Antioch, but also the kingdom of God. So we've got Barnabas, who is from the island of Cyprus. We're going to learn a little bit more about here in a minute. Uh, Then it says we've got uh, Simeon, uh, who's also called Niger, which is Latin for dark or black. So many scholars believe he was an African, dark-skinned African. Uh, So then you have Lucius, uh, the Cyrene, who's from northern Africa. Think like Egyptian, right? So a little lighter skinned, probably looking more like the rest of the Jews at that time. Menaean. It says he's a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas, the one who Jesus spoke to uh, before he was executed. And we talked last week a little bit about the Herods and and how evil they were. And this guy uh, grew up with him. Some scholars think he was an adopted uh, child into that family, and so basically a foster brother of Herod. I mean, he's got him in his phone, right? And you're like, ah, that's a bad dude. Why are you hanging around? He's your family? Oh my gosh. And he's part of this church, okay? Not only part of the church, he's part of the leadership team. And then, of course, you have Saul, uh, who is a Jew from Tarsus, also a Roman citizen. I mean, this is a crazy group of people, uh, right? I was trying to think of, like, how would we explain this today? And the best I can come up with is you've got a deep South Republican, uh, and then you've got like a California Democrat, uh, and then you have like a Midwest Libertarian, and a Canadian, of course, uh, and, and like a Texan and a Mexican. And it sounds like a bad joke, right? But that's your church's leadership team, right? Is all these people with all these different viewpoints and backgrounds and cultures, and they're coming together. And the beauty is, what do they have in common? Jesus. They're, they're, they are united around Jesus and around the gospel for all, right? They all understand the gospel is for everyone, even them, and it has drawn them together. And, and so they are worshiping the Lord. And now, if you're a note taker, uh, I'll just go ahead and give you the first point now, and it's this. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks. So, so the church is together. It's not just these leaders, but it's the entire church is, is together, and they are worshiping. The, the word in the original language here is actually the word uh, that we get the word liturgy from. They're liturgizing. Uh, uh, they're ministering to the Lord uh, through their prayer and their worship and their devotion and their reading of Scripture. Okay, uh, that's, We love liturgy here. We, are, we have a liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. They just don't admit it. Um, but but it's, it's, a, it's a flow of our gathering that helps us point our, our hearts and minds towards the Lord Jesus. And so the church here is, is liturgying, liturgizing. They're worshiping. They are depending together on the Lord for what only he can do. Perhaps they're even asking in their, in their church gathering, what's next? Like what we... We didn't anticipate the church at Antioch, and now here it is, and all these different cultures, and we know that the only reason that we're in this room is because the gospel flowed through other people to us. And so what do you want next, Lord? What's, what, what's going to happen next for us? And then the text tells us that the Holy Spirit spoke. The Holy Spirit said, 
right? Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, this is verse 2, for the work to which I have called them. So here's the person of the Holy Spirit, right? Saying, I have called these men to a ministry that I am giving them, set them apart. And then what's the church do? Verse 3, after fasting and praying, they're affirming this call. They lay their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit spoke. Likely, uh, it was one of these prophets uh, who was in the church that the Spirit revealed that to, and they spoke that word, and then the church affirmed it through more fasting and more prayer. But I want you to see something here. It's really important, because I've been at this a long time, and I've had a lot of people come to me and say, the Lord is calling me to X, Y, and Z. And I always go, okay, who has affirmed that? Because the way, the way the text tells us, the way the rest of the Bible reads, there is an internal call of the Holy Spirit, and that call gets affirmed by the church, by the community that you submit yourself to. And so when someone comes to me and they go, hey, the Lord's calling me to missions, and I'm like, great, are you a part of this church or another church? And they're like, no, I'm not part of a church, but the Lord's called me. I'm like, no, he hasn't. At least not yet, because you haven't submitted yourself to a congregation. You haven't been in community enough for them to help you discern this calling. And so what we see here is an internal call, okay, and an external affirmation. The church um, prays, they fast, and together they affirm, yes, God is sending, God is calling these men uh, to another work. Now, we don't even know where the work is. They don't say here. But nevertheless, they lay hands on them, and they pray for them, and they send them out. And here in Antioch, the concept of global missions is born. If you think about it, all the other times, like we've seen uh, so far in Acts, uh, believers scatter and take the gospel with them. But why did they scatter? Persecution, right? Hardship came and they left town and took the gospel with them. But this is the first example of intentional, purposeful There's no oppression. There's no persecution yet. They're just going to go. And and this is where the concept of global missions, intentional sending uh, starts. And as I said earlier, uh, Antioch now will become the hub for mission for the Christian church from this point forward for a good long while, right? It it shifts from Jerusalem now to uh, Antioch, which is beautiful when you think about it because Jerusalem is predominantly Jewish and the first believers were Jewish, but now Antioch is this multicultural city, right? Made up of all the nations and the gospels for who? All the nations, right? And so it becomes this place where we can send because we're, we're training up disciples and missionaries from all these different cultures to send them back to where they came from. It's beautiful. So a couple things we can learn here, I think, really quickly, and this will move on to point two. When we gather as a church, when we gather as community groups, when we gather with other brothers and sisters to worship and to pray, we should expect that the Holy Spirit will be speaking. Um, As I looked through the book of Acts, I saw that uh, the Holy Spirit speaks about 27 times in the book of Acts. Now, some of us, if we're honest, like we come to church um, week by week or a couple times a month or whatever our rhythm is, um, and we're, we're coming because we are looking for a little bit of inspiration. We're looking for a lift. It's been a hard week, and maybe I'll be encouraged if I go to church, but if we're honest with ourselves, we don't necessarily expect that God's going to be here. We don't necessarily expect that the Holy Spirit is going to speak, that he's going to speak to us, that he's going to speak to others in our community, that he's going to encourage or, or challenge or send, right? That, that, but I, I, I think when we gather, I believe when we gather, we ought to expect in the same way that when we pray, we should expect that God hears us and wants to answer. When we gather to worship and to pray and to seek God, we ought to expect that God will hear us and that he'll speak to us. There is no change in our lives personally. There is no growth There is no salvation of others. There is no movement without the power and the presence of God's Holy Spirit. And so if we're not expecting that when we gather, God's going to speak, God's going to move, God's going to save, God's going to change, then what are we doing here? 
I can think of a lot of better stuff that you could do with your time at 9.30 in the morning on a Sunday than be here if you do not expect that God is going to meet you here when you come. Secondly, true worship will always lead us to mission. True worship will always lead us to mission, whether that means across the globe or across the street. Think of what Jesus said. When he was asked, what is the greatest of the commandments, what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, then, then he goes, and the second is this. They only asked him for one. And he goes, well, they're kind of equally important. Love the Lord your God. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. True worship will always lead us to mission. Always. When, when we are captured by the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what he has done for us in giving his perfect life for our sinful life, covering our debt, paying it in full, uh, calling us righteous, like clothing us with his robe of righteousness uh, so that in the sight of God, we are looked at as without sin, even though we are full of sin. When we are adopted into the family of God and we can't get over it, we want others to experience it too. Paul, later in 2 Corinthians 5, he will say, um, I am controlled by or compelled by the love of Christ. I love that line, right? That it's, I, and you, you imagine, you know, the life of, of Saul, Paul, who hated Jesus, was a murderer of Christians, like most of us don't have that testimony, uh, and then he was radically saved and gives his life for the sake of the gospel. He never got over the gospel. He never got over the love of Jesus. And I don't care if you grew up like you were born on the altar, they smacked your bottom and served you communion, and you grew up in Sunday school your whole life, or whether you were a drug addict and, and a prostitute and whatever, and the Lord saved you. Like, we should never be able to get over what Jesus has done for us. Now, some of you will be called to mission vocationally, whether that's as a church planter, whether that's as a foreign missionary. Uh, I don't know what God might be doing. I talked to a young woman just last week who, is, uh, who went on a trip recently and, and feels like God is stirring something in her. And I told her, hey, we want to connect you with some other people to help you discern this calling. We want to pray for you. And that's what the church's role is. God, even right now, might be stirring some of you to, to serve him on the mission field somewhere or to go into vocational ministry or, or uh, that kind of thing. And, and if God does that, then we want to help you discern that calling, clarify that calling, lay our hands on you, pray for you, and send you. But all of us, all of us are called to mission. All of us are called. I, I think of Peter earlier in Acts, uh, I believe it's Acts chapter 4, when he says, um, he, they tell him, stop preaching the gospel. And he goes, I can't help but tell of what I have seen and heard. <laughs> right? So the Holy Spirit speaks. That's my first point. But secondly, the Holy Spirit sends. The Holy Spirit sends. Look with me at verse 4. So, being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. Being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, John Mark, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole uh, island as far as Paphos, they came to a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The Holy Spirit sends. Okay? Um, the church at Antioch made a huge sacrifice in commissioning two of their best. Like these are the men who discipled them. And now they're going to send them away uh, off to the mission field. And nevertheless, the text tells us that they were sent by the Spirit. So the church commissioned them, but they were sent by the Holy Spirit, and they head west. Uh, now, 
I'm going to ask to pull this map up really quick. Because we mentioned a lot of cities, and some of you are like, yeah, I don't know anything about those places. I'm a little lost. And so I got a map for you. You might also have one of these in the back of your Bible. But I know you can't read it so, because it's too tiny. So let me, do you see the purple area there sort of mid-screen to the right? Okay. Uh, that island there, that is the island of Cyprus. And if you follow that blue line up to the right, sort of diagonally, that's Antioch. Okay. So um, down below at the bottom right is Jerusalem and Judea. So that's where this movement started. And it has made its way all over the place, but primarily north along the coast. Uh, they went to Antioch, and that's where the church was. Now, click to the next map that's sort of a zoomed-in version. Now you can see a little bit more clearly uh, Antioch there in the sort of mid uh, part of the screen on the right. Seleucia, that's a town southwest of Antioch, is a port city. So they're going there, they get on a boat, and they're going to sail over to Cyprus. Salamis is a port city on the eastern side of Cyprus, and then Paphos is a port city on the western side. So they're basically making a, a preaching journey all the way across the island of Cyprus. You could just leave that map up for a minute. So they head west, they go Seleucia on, on the ship to Cyprus. There's no specific reason given why they went to Cyprus, but we know that that's Barnabas' home country. He's from Cyprus. And so um, it makes kind of practical sense, right? Uh, if you've noticed, God has called Barnabas and Saul, not Saul and Barnabas. Barnabas is sort of the leader of this trip, even though it's called Paul's first missionary journey. It's really Barnabas' <laughs> missionary journey. But uh, perhaps they go, hey, look, we know that the, the gospel is already at work here. Chapter 11, verse 19 told us that there were some folks who had come from Cyprus to Antioch with the gospel. So we know the gospel's already taken root uh, a little bit in Cyprus. So maybe they're going to check on the churches. Maybe they're going to see what God's up to. It's also a good jumping off point. They're going to be heading uh, uh, around the bend there, north, into, you see those other places, uh, Pamphylia and all that. This is where the missionary journey is going to continue. So it's a good hub, a uh, good jumping off point for them to stock up and get ready for their journey uh, across the sea and up north on the rest of their missionary journey. Anyway, <clears throat> um, the rest of the book of Acts is really going to focus on Paul and his missionary journeys sort of west and north as the gospel makes its way towards Rome. But I think it's worth, uh, it's important to remember that uh, that's not the only place the gospel's spreading. Uh, in fact, at this time, the gospel's actually spreading everywhere, uh, to the east, to the south, uh, further north. I mean, it's going all over the place, but Luke is going to primarily focus uh, his attention on the missionary journeys of Saul, Paul, for the rest of this book. So they hit Salamis, uh, as is their sort of custom. Um, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So he knows the gospel's for all, uh, and yet his practice was to go into the synagogues first with people who already believed the scriptures and to show them Jesus and get some of them saved and on his team and then to move forward from there. And so they're visiting the synagogues uh, on their journey across the island of Cyprus, and they're proclaiming the gospel. You can, you can take the map down if you want to now. So they're, they're, they're journeying across this 90-mile-wide island uh, all the way to Paphos. And what are they doing? They're proclaiming the word. That's what the text tells us. They're going where the Spirit sends them, and they're seizing opportunities to share the hope of Jesus. Saved people are sent people. Now, when I say that, I realize that for some of us, um, there may be a, a feeling of guilt associated with that. Um, there shouldn't be guilt. When we understand that saved people are sent people, it shouldn't be this uh, feeling of dread that like, oh, I have to share about Jesus, right? It is our privilege together to open our mouths and open our lives and together to be witnesses of what God has done. I remember... Uh, I got saved uh, at around the age of 15 in a, a small Southern Baptist church, not a knock on Southern Baptist churches. It was a great experience for a little while. Um, but I remember a lot of pressure to, to be out witnessing. Some of you might be familiar with this. On Tuesdays, they did visitation. And so around 7 p.m. every Tuesday, a group of folks would go out and just randomly knock on people's doors and ask them uh, about Jesus. Now, Praise God for their courage to go do that. 
But I'm going to tell you, if somebody knocks on my door at 7 p.m. right now, uh, I'm like, who is bothering me, right? We don't, people, like, UPS doesn't even ring your doorbell anymore. They just throw the package on your porch, right? They, um, but there was this sense of pressure, like, you're supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be going out and knocking on strangers' doors and telling them about Jesus. And uh, it, that always did not, it, it never sat well with me. There's just, it was terrifying, right? As a 15-year-old to be going to some stranger's house, you know, hey, if you die tonight, right? And they're like, you might die tonight. It's like, I don't, okay, maybe I'll go to the next house, you know? And it felt like a sales pitch. You know, we, we would come, now this is this particular church. It's not every church, but we, we would come back and then it was like sharing stories like, did you close the deal? Did you get, you know, like how far did you get with this person? And it's, it's, it felt gross, to be honest with you. Okay, the word witnesses is used 39 times in the book of Acts. And almost every single time it's used as a passive, in the passive tense. Meaning that um, to be witnesses is not so much a command as much as it is a reality for those who are in Christ. When Jesus says, you will receive power from my spirit and you will be witnesses, he's not saying you better be witnesses. He's saying you will be. It's a natural outcome of the power and the presence of God's spirit in you. You're just going to be witnesses. Why? Because we talk about the things we love. And, and back to my previous point, if we are so enraptured with the glory and beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us in the gospel, we can't help, as Peter did, we can't help but open our mouths about what he's done for us. He sends us in our human weakness, with our vulnerability, uh, with our anxiety and our nervousness, but also with his power and his presence. And through us, he does what only God can do. But I think it's important to recognize that the Spirit sends us, he sent them directly into both opposition and opportunity. It reminded me just this morning, it came to mind that... Um, in Luke's gospel, the very first thing the Spirit does is send Jesus where? Into the wilderness, right? To be tempted by the devil. The Spirit at times will send us directly into opposition and opportunity. So let's look at this opposition really quickly. We've got this guy, Bar Jesus. Uh, Bar Jesus means son of. Bar means son of. So you have a uh, 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 Barnabas is son of encouragement. Um, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Bar-Jesus is son of Jesus. Now, Jesus was a common name. Jesus means salvation, though. So it's ironic. This guy's name is son of salvation. And yet the text tells us he's a false prophet, which means he's deliberately deceptive. Deliberately. Uh, it says he's a magician, uh, which isn't like pulling rabbits out of hats. <laughs> You know, is this your card? Like, that's not that kind of magic. He was practicing occultism, kind of like uh, Simon the, the magician earlier that we saw in the book of Acts. And he's sort of a spiritual advisor to uh, the, the, um, the proconsul here, this guy, uh, Sergius Paulus. So he's kind of like in his cabinet, and he's, you know, reading the stars or doing whatever incantations, and he's giving advice, spiritual advice uh, to Sergius Paulus. But he's a false prophet. He's deliberately deceptive, and he's opposed to the gospel. The text tells us he's actually seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He's working actively against him. And listen, you and I all have people, or most of us probably have people in our lives who are not just apathetic to Jesus, they are antagonistic. It's not just that they don't care, it's that they think it's dumb, wrong, bad. No one should believe it. It's a harm to society. I, I, I have had these kinds of people in my life before, and it's very difficult at times, right? Because they're just so full of hatred and, and uh, vileness towards Jesus and towards people who are associated with Jesus. And so here's this man who's, who's antagonistic, who's, who's seeking to turn the proconsul away from the Lord Jesus. But then you've got Sergius Paulus. He's a Roman governor appointed by the Senate. Uh, and God is at work in this man. He is open. He's eager 
to hear more about Jesus. In fact, he actually calls for Barnabas and Saul to come to him and to tell him about the gospel. If that's not an open door, I don't know what is. <laughs> Luke makes the point of telling us that he's an intelligent man, which I, I thought was odd at first, but then it, I realized, um, I think what he means by that is he wasn't deceived by this false prophet. So though he was a spiritual advisor, he wasn't bothered. He wasn't deceived. He wasn't believing uh, this man. He, he knew there was more to life than what he had experienced and what this bar Jesus was showing him. And similarly, there are folks in our lives who are far more eager and interested to hear about Jesus than we even know. Maybe, maybe there's some of you here this morning who are here because you were eager to hear more about Jesus, that you're open. Maybe you're watching online right now uh, because someone has told you about this church or about Jesus and you're eager and God is at work in you. He's drawing you to faith. He's, he's opening your heart up. But my main point in that is it's the Holy Spirit who sends, but anytime, anytime we face opportunity, we will also face opposition, Okay? It's just a reality. Um, Paul, at the end of his life, did not say, I danced a good dance. What did he say? I fought the good fight. <laughs> it's a fight. It's a battle. And God will provide opportunities for us. But I think sometimes we, we, we deceive ourselves by thinking, like, if the Spirit sends me, this is going to be easy. Right? If the, if the Spirit is sending me, it's going to be just like uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Who's reading the Bible. And I'm like, hey, do you know what you're reading? He's like, how can I unless someone tells me? And I'm like, well, I can tell you. And I tell him about Jesus and then I baptize him all right there. Like that's how we think it's gonna go 99% of the time. And it just doesn't. What more likely happens is you feel God drawing you, pushing you, sending you to, to speak the gospel to someone and you do. And they go, well, that's stupid. I don't wanna believe that. And you're like, huh, did I hear from you, Lord, correctly? Or was that me, right? You just start to question. But there will be opportunities. There will be opposition, but it's the Spirit who sends. Okay, last little bit here. You guys hanging in? Look at verse 9 with me. But Saul, who is also called Paul, everybody in this passage has two names. It's very confusing. Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, I love this, you son of the devil, <laughs> he does not mince words here, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and not in a good way, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at what? At the teaching of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He saw this miracle, and yet he's astonished at the teaching of the Lord. My last point here is the Holy Spirit strengthens and saves. The Holy Spirit strengthens and saves. Uh, I told you this earlier in the book of Acts, but Saul, a lot of, I've even said this in the past, and, and I'm wrong about that, I'm pretty sure. Uh, a lot of people would say, like, Saul uh, was renamed Paul. Saul means great one, Paul means small, and in light of Jesus, that Saul was like, no, I'm Paul now, I'm small. But more likely, he had a Jewish name and a Roman name. And so Saul was his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. And because he's moving throughout the Roman Empire and out of Jewish territory, from here on out, he'll be called Paul. Uh, he's facing this opposition from, from Elamus, Elamus, whatever you want to call his name. But he has compassion for Sergius Paulus. He has compassion for this man who's eager to hear about Jesus and, and who he senses God is up to something in his life. And so he genuinely wants Sergius Paulus to know Jesus, and he realizes there's a lot on the line here, right? That there, eternity is at stake in this conversation. And so what does he do? Does he go, well, you know, Elamus, you have your perspective and I have mine. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you, know, you have one path up the mountain and I have another, and we should just respect each other, and let's, all, let's create a bumper sticker with all our different perspectives. And no. He confronts him. He confronts him with the truth of the gospel. But this is so important. Hear me clearly on this. 
he confronts him, but he is filled with the Spirit. There are some of you who like confrontation, but you're not filled with the Spirit, and you're just a jerk. And you pick fights, and you have arguments, and you butt your head against people, and you're actually doing a disservice to the reputation of Christianity. You need to hear that. This man is filled with the Spirit. Now, because the Holy Spirit is not like gasoline or water, then filled, it's not like, look, 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 he's filled. Filled means controlled by, compelled by, led by. Okay, so Paul is filled with the Spirit. He's controlled by the Spirit, and he begins to speak. He opens his mouth in confrontation. Now, you need to remember this, okay? The same Holy Spirit that convicts us, that regenerates us, that seals us, that indwells us, that guides us to all truth, that sanctifies us, the same spirit that transforms us into the image of Christ, that gives us access to God the Father, that enables our obedience to the commands of God, the same spirit that gives us joy and teaches us and and comforts us and helps us in our weaknesses also fills us and empowers us and strengthens us and speaks to us and through us. My prayer for every single person in this room is that you would be filled with, strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God. And so Saul, Paul, filled with the Spirit, he fixes his eyes on this false prophet. And he calls him out. Now, I don't recommend this, okay? Uh, I think in this specific instance, Paul was sure that this was a demonic distraction, um, because Paul himself had been an enemy of the gospel, you know? And so he's not like, what the nerve, right? That you, no, he knows this is from the enemy. This is a distraction. And so he confronts it boldly. And he says, you're not a son of salvation. You are the son of the devil. Who's the father of lies. I'm trying to tell people about the righteous one and you are an enemy of righteousness. You aren't pointing to truth. You're full of deceit. You are both deceived and deceiving. And I love how he says here at the end, stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. In other words, this man is bringing confusion to the gospel. He's overcomplicating things. And listen, the gospel in its purest form is a simple and clear message, right? That, that Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a perfect sinless life that you and I could never live, tempted in every way that we are, but without sin, why? To fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law in our place. Jesus died in our place for our sins, taking all our shame and guilt upon himself, absorbing the wrath of God against sin in our place and turning it into God's favor towards us so that anyone who would receive Christ with the empty hands of faith could be forgiven and welcomed into the family of God, called a child of God. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and hell for us proving that his death on the cross was satisfactory and sufficient, that death could not hold him, right? And even now he rules and reigns from heaven and will one day come to restore and renew all things, right? That is the simplicity of this message. But, but the enemy and our own sinful hearts try to complicate it and, and end up clouding it at the end of the day. And, and a lot of what you'll see uh, th- throughout the, book, the rest of Acts and all the epistles, all the letters in the, in the, the New Testament, is people trying to add to and overcomplicate the simple gospel. So Paul says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now, earlier we saw that the hand of the Lord was upon these people who proclaimed the gospel, and it was, it was favorable. Now the hand of the Lord is upon them, uh, upon this man, and he strikes him blind. Now, Paul had suffered the same, hadn't he? And, and it was, he was such an opponent to the gospel that it took blindness to humble him and to, con- to convince him, to convert him. And perhaps in a severe mercy, God is doing the same for Elamus here. Perhaps he's giving him the same opportunity. You, you will be in darkness. You will be dependent on others. You will see that, that the power you think you have is nothing compared to the power of the true God. And you have an opportunity to surrender. Now, we don't have record that he ever did. Um, but it's, it's worth noting that, that that same instance which drew Saul to faith 
uh, is happening now with this man, Elamis. It reminds me, I heard a theologian years ago say that God will sometimes break your fingers to get your hands off things he knows will harm you. And that goes for unbelievers and believers alike. Um, That in our stubbornness and in our pride, we cling to things that we think will bring us joy, satisfaction, meaning, worth. And God, in his severe mercy, will break our fingers to get our hands off those things so that he can actually save us and show us himself. Meanwhile, Sergius is watching this whole encounter. And I just, I mean, put yourself in his shoes where he's sitting there, you know, here's his advisor who's, you know, trying to come against Paul. And then Paul's like, you're going to be blind. And he's like, well, I can't see anything, right? Darkness, mist comes upon him immediately. But, but here's what I th- think is so fascinating. He believed based on the teaching. He was impressed with Paul's courage. He was surprised by this supernatural sign. But the text says he was astonished by the word of God. Not Paul's delivery, but the content of the gospel message. And Sergius surrenders his life to the Lordship of Christ. The Holy Spirit, as he normally does, used the proclamation of the gospel to awaken the heart of this man who was dead in his sins and trespasses. And that's what the Spirit normally does, right? He works through the proclamation of the Word of God to awaken dead souls and to bring them to life. And um, as I wrap this up, I just want to remind you of a passage the Lord brought to my mind this morning out of uh, Romans chapter 10. For everyone, verse 13, Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, it is the Holy Spirit who speaks. It's the Holy Spirit who sends. It's the Holy Spirit who strengthens. And it's the Holy Spirit who saves. Amen? Amen. I got a couple questions I want to throw up on the screen for you as we move into our time of response. Uh, You can write them down as they come or take a picture of the screen when they're all up. First one is this. Uh, Am I expecting God's Spirit to speak to me? Now again, the Lord may speak to you internally, right? Reveal something to you through His Word or through uh, uh, by His Spirit. And yet that needs to be confirmed and affirmed by your congregation, by your community. But do I come here? Do I come to community group? Do I come to church expecting that God is going to speak, that that God's going to reveal more of himself, his glory, his beauty, that he's going to encourage me or challenge me or rebuke me or comfort me or direct me or lead me? If not, why not? Like, what am I doing if I'm not expecting God to show up when I come? Secondly, where might the Holy Spirit be sending me? Now, for some of you, the answer might be nowhere at the moment, and that's totally fine. I don't want anyone to feel pressure that I have to, you know, God's, I'm missing God's assignment. For some of you, it might be rest, wait, sit. Just as Jesus said to the disciples, wait until the Holy Spirit fills you, right? But others of us, when, when, you, when this question came on the screen, immediately you had the, the picture in mind of someone you know. Maybe it's your own child. Maybe it's your own parent. Maybe it's a coworker, a friend, a neighbor. Uh, you, you know God is, is sending you, that he is co- compelling you to someone uh, or to somewhere. And um, my encouragement to you would be do not resist the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but if you sense that, let it be known and let us pray together with you for that person, for receptivity to the gospel, for open doors. Uh, And then thirdly, what would it look like for me to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit? Some of you are coming in this morning so weak, so beaten down, so weary from so much that's going on in your lives, and and you need to be strengthened. What would it look like if the Holy Spirit would strengthen me this morning? 
not, not just strengthen me to proclaim the gospel, but just to, to bolster me, to build me up, to restore the joy of my salvation. Right? Where do I need to be strengthened? How can I ask my community to pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen me specifically? What would it look like for me to be strengthened uh, by the Holy Spirit? All right, I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen for you. Uh, we do have the elements ready for communion this morning, uh, so we're still doing these stinking rip and sip cups, which we all know are awful, but it's not about the quality of the elements. It's about our practice of remembering the body and blood of Jesus. And so if you're a gluten-free person, uh, at this back giving box, there is a tray with gluten-free wafers. Uh, I can't imagine these little wafers have gluten, but just to be on the safe side, we do have other, <laughs> other crackers uh, back there. But uh, when you're ready, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to take communion of your own accord. And the reason we do this is that on the night before Jesus was uh, uh, executed, he told us that when we gather, as often as we gather, we should remember his body broken for us, that we should remember and celebrate his blood shed for us, the new covenant that, that is now uh, ours uh, in his blood. And so we remember his body broken to make us whole. We remember his blood spilled to cleanse us from sin and unrighteousness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't, don't, don't partake in this. Uh, this is not for you, uh, but for those who, who feel compelled uh, as followers of Jesus, you may do that. Uh, I'll pray for you, and then uh, the band will return and lead us in a couple songs as we close up this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And Holy Spirit, I, I pray right now that you would, in this time of response, that you would uh, make your presence known, um, that you would speak, that we would listen that we would hear you, uh, that we would follow your lead, and, uh, and that we would, in our obedience to you, glorify the Lord Jesus. Uh, that's, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to exalt Christ. And so, um, Lord, as we, as we listen, um, help us to be obedient and to follow you. And Lord, um, I pray that you would just encourage us and remind us that we, uh, we are in desperate need uh, of the power and presence of God in our lives, and that comes through relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so uh, if there's anyone who is not a follower of Jesus this morning, I pray that you would move them across that threshold and you'd allow us to be able to talk with them, pray with them, and celebrate uh, that today. But um, it, Lord, now as we just make ourselves available to you in worship, uh, would you be glorified and uh, would you do what only you can do in our hearts and lives? We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus by the power of your spirit. Amen.